Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 3, 1 through 11. You can find that on page 981 of your Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one as a gift from us. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and to each of you. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for venturing in through the rain and uh, yeah, for being here in the midst of this. We're so grateful. And uh, again, if I know for some of you, this is even your first Sunday back, uh, or maybe this is your first Sunday with us at Brookside uh, ever. And if regardless of that case, just hope that you feel uh, so welcome uh, here, and we're so glad that you're here with us. And as we look at this passage that Francis just read for us, I want to take a moment to pray and ask that the very, uh, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, that the God who preserved these words for us, um, that he would be at work afresh in this moment, applying these words in our lives. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us and that you have inspired the scriptures for us and that now we pray that your Holy Spirit would enliven these words of the Apostle Paul to us so that they would do the work of um, just of changing us, of making us new speaking to us where we're at. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I well, wanted to begin this morning just by asking a question, and that is, when you think of religion or religious people, what are the sort of images or feelings uh, that, that kind of come up for you in that moment? What do you, what do you imagine? What, do you, what words, what feelings do you have when you think of religion or religious people? people, religion and religious people, what are, the, what are the feelings, what are the emotions, what are the, the words, the images that come to mind? Uh, maybe if you're like me, one of the images that came to mind when you think of religion or religious people was Dana Carvey as the church lady on Saturday Night Live from a, a generation of Saturday Night Live ago. Um, but I wonder if in all of whatever came to your mind when you thought about religion or religious people, I wonder if joy was one of the words that came to mind for you. 
or one of the feelings that you had. And I wonder why that I guess, my guess is, my hunch is that for many of us, joy was not at the top of that list. And, and I think for many people, maybe you're even there this morning, that you would feel like actually religion has been a barrier to joy, not a pathway to joy. And that for a lot of religious people, when you do think of them, you, you maybe think of someone who is uptight, who is angry, who is judgmental, maybe hypocritical, but you, you don't, you maybe think of someone who is a killjoy, but not someone who is full of joy. But Jesus promised to Christians, Jesus promised that, that Christians would have his joy and that they would have it to the full. And so if that is the case, then, then why is it that we don't see that more, that, that joyfulness is not what people think of when they think of people who have come to know and love Jesus? Well, and that question really gets at the heart of what Paul goes to in Philippians chapter 3. We've been studying this letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a, a little church that was just beginning in the city of Philippi. And he uses some intense language in this letter, or rather in this passage, in this part of the letter, that's really not he doesn't use anywhere else. He has letters where he's more harsh, where he's more intense, but Philippians as a whole is a really warm, effusive joy. We've talked about this. It's a joy-filled letter, but you get some intense language from Paul here, and we want to ask the question, why? And part of the reason, just to hint at this, is that all of us are trying to put ourselves in the category of those who are the good ones. Now, we might use different criteria to define who the good ones are, but we all want to do that. And so religious people can tend to do that by saying, I keep all these rules, I have all these right beliefs, so I'm one of the good ones. But you might be here, you're like, I'm not really a very religious person. In fact, sometimes I define myself as being one of the good ones because I don't do all those things that the religious crowds do. But regardless, we still are looking often to something to say, what is it that makes me one of the good ones? One of the good ones. And again, you, if you're a religious person, churchgoer person, you might say, I, I look to my beliefs, I look to my church attendance, my performance, and that way to say, I'm one of the good ones. But you might look to your job, your work, your education, your, your family, the success of your kids, and say, look, because of this, I'm one of the good ones, that I'm here, and I'm one of the good ones. And Paul, though, he thinks that if you have that approach, that I am one of the good ones because, and fill in the blank, whatever's there, if that is your approach, that not only will it rob your joy, it has the potential to destroy your soul. And that's why his language is such a strong warning here. So if you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to grab one of the Pew Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Again, that's on page 981 in the Pew Bible. You can also just open up a web browser on your phone, type Phil, P-H-I-L, 3 into your web browser, and you'll, you'll find a, a Bible website that will pull up that text as well. But I'd love for you to see this as we're walking through it together and, and how Paul is unfolding this. And when you get there, he starts off in Philippians chapter 3 with the same kind of joyful tone, but then in verse 2, it takes a sharp turn. So listen to these first three verses. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. And he says, look out for the dogs. 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Holy or the true, the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the threat, in the, in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul, he's diving in here and he gets angry. He has this aggressive kind of language of watch out for these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. Why? Because Paul reserves in this letter his greatest anger for the greatest threat to their joy. He reserves his greatest anger for the greatest threat to their joy. And one of the questions I just want you to kind of keep in your mind as we walk through this passage together this morning is how is dead religion different than joyful Christianity? How is a dead religion different than a joyful Christianity? And we have to understand to answer that question why Paul is so upset here. And to do that, we need to just think back to the context of when this letter is written. So it's written to this little village, this city of Philippi, and most of the people who lived in the city is a Roman colony. Uh, so it's not in Italy, but it was established by the Romans, and yet a lot of re- former like Roman military officers who were retired there. This is a Roman colony. It's predominantly made up of, of non-Jewish people. And non-Jews knew that Jews separated themselves from non-Jews, from Gentiles, and there was really kind of three key markers that separated Jews from their Gentile, their non-Jewish neighbors. One was their diet, so keeping the kosher diet was one way that that Jews marked themselves as as being different from their surrounding neighbors. The other one was Sabbath-keeping, the practice of, of the Sabbath of a day of rest, and then the practice of circumcision as well. So these are the three big markers that established a distinction between Jews and non-Jews. So you have this city of Philippi made up of a bunch of non-Jews. And then one day, Paul and his buddy Silas, they come to Philippi. Imagine yourself there. Paul and Silas, they show up. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. They show up in this city. And they start telling all this good news about this person named Jesus from Nazareth, back in Judea, the kind of the, the, the heart, the center of Judaism in the world, who has come and he's offering forgiveness of sins. And he's actually, the good news is that anyone, even those who are non-Jews, can be a part of this family. That they can join God's family. That they can be welcomed in. They can be a part of a new community by faith alone in Jesus. And imagine you're there and you hear this message. And you think, this is, this is amazing. And, and, and the key part of this is you don't have to become a Jew first. You don't have to convert to Judaism. You just have to trust in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit works in your life. And, and you come to this faith and, and you believe in Jesus. And there's so much joy. And you can't wait to start gathering with these other Christians. That you don't even have this word for it yet. But these, these other followers of Jesus who, who are gathered there. And you start to gather and there's so much joy, but pretty quickly Paul and Silas, they move on. They have to go on to, to Thessalonica and they're starting a church community there and you're just eager to follow Jesus to understand how to obey him and, and live this new life of faith. You can imagine now a few months later some other teachers show up and you're excited to hear from them because you, you don't know much about Christianity. You don't know much about Jesus. You just, you don't have the New Testament. Paul's writing the New Testament at this point, these letters. It, you, maybe you don't even have copies of the Old Testament. You're so eager to learn about Jesus. And these new teachers, they come in and they say, Paul got it close to right. He was so close. But, but really, he was missing it when he said you didn't need to be, if you really want to follow Jesus well, if you really want to obey Jesus fully, 
you also need to adopt these Jewish practices of diet, of Sabbath-keeping, and also circumcision. And it's once you begin to understand that, that you can understand how people in the church, these non-Jews, would feel pressure. Well, if I want to really follow Jesus, if I want to be one of the good ones, if I really want to be a part of his family, then I need to adopt these rituals. Because you can imagine it would take a lot for someone to accept the practice of circumcision who's not already been there. But you can see the pressure and the appeal that, well, I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey him. And if, and if he's Jewish and his first followers are Jewish, maybe I need to become Jewish too. And Paul hears that this is happening and he writes here and he says, no, you cannot go to that direction. It, it, you, you cannot go there because it undermines the good news. And in fact, if you start doing this, you start turning the good news about Jesus into good advice of what, we, what you have to do to be accepted by him. Says, we have Jesus by faith. Those are the ones who are truly a part of the, of the family of God. That's what he means. He says, we are the circumcision. The true circumcision is no longer sort of bodily surgery. It is the fact that you have faith in Jesus that marks you as part of the covenant people of God, that you are part of this new covenant family that he's made. And Paul uses a key word here that really unlocks the whole passage for us. And it's the word boast. It's actually translated here in the English Standard Version that we're reading from as, it's in verse 3. It's where he says, glory in. Um, and in a few places in the New Testament, it's translated rejoice in, but almost everywhere else in the New Testament, it's translated boast in. Paul uses this word boast in over 30 times in the New Testament. It's all over this letter to the, the, the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So, and I never really felt like I understood this language of boasting until a few years ago, three or four years ago, I was at a pastor's conference and, and one of the speakers there just kind of camped out on that. I said, what is this boasting language all about? Why does Paul use this boasting language? And it clicked for me in a fresh way. Because boasting, it's a military term. So it has a military background. And really the background of the idea of what is a boast. A boast is when you're a general, a king, especially in ancient bloody kind of warfare, hand-to-hand kind of combat. How do you get your troops to go into battle and face almost certain death? You have to have a boast. You boast beforehand. You say, we can win. We have the best gear. We've trained the best. We have the sharpest spears, the the surest arrows. And then, ah, we're going to go get them. We can win. The boast is what you work up and you say, we are enough. We have what it takes to defeat the enemy. That's what a boast was. Paul is saying, you can either boast in yourself, in your achievements, or you can boast in what Jesus has accomplished for you. But all of us, as we face life, come into situations where we have to boast, where we have to tell ourselves, this is what makes me enough in this situation. This is what makes me able to face this difficulty. This is what makes me able to, to succeed at life, that I have something. And whatever you fill in that blank, that's your boast. The problem is that both religious people and non-religious people, we tend to boast in the wrong things. And again, when we start boasting in the wrong things, we run the risk of turning the good news about what Jesus has done for us into good advice about what we have to do to earn God's favor. 
Boasting the wrong thing turns the good news about what Jesus has done into good advice about what we can do. And it totally changes everything. And Paul says, look, I've got more to boast about than anyone, but it doesn't work. And this is what he says. Look at this down in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else, he says, frankly, I've got more than all of you. If, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's writing both to the Jews and the non-Jews in Philippi and saying, if anyone has a reason to boast, I've got more. I've got you all beat on the boasting game. And, And in fact, if you want to play that game, you're, you're going to lose. And, and Paul gives two big categories. The first four things that he lists are all about his ethnic kind of pedigree, his ethnic heritage. And in traditional cultures, both in the ancient world and in more traditional cultures around the world today, your ethnic pedigree matters a lot more. For us as, as sort of modern Western people, we don't think about that as much. But who is your family? What tribe do you belong to? Who are your parents? That's a big part of your identity in more traditional cultures, much more so even than maybe your particular individual accomplishments. It's who's your father? Who's your mother? Now, the next three things that Paul gives are much more personal achievements, his his zeal, his passion, his hard work. And again, in more modern cultures, we tend to focus on those things. We don't ask as much about, well, who who are your parents? What what people group are you from? That's not as as big of a a thing. Those still matters, right? It's not irrelevant. But we tend to ask more questions like, where'd you go to school? What's your resume? What's your title? It's about what have you achieved that we tend to look for. And Paul says, look, I've got both of those things to the max. And it doesn't work. When we boast in those things, whether in kind of our ethnic heritage or our personal achievement, that joy is stolen and the gospel is vandalized. We boast in the wrong things. But what does that look like for us in our lives? How does that actually play out? I want to think about four things here as we think about how this plays out. How does this boasting sound in our lives? Well, I think one way it shows up is we say, I belong to the right people. So we boast in the fact that I I belong to the right people. Maybe not a particular tribal people, but we boast in the fact that I'm an American, or I'm an alumni of this school, or I'm a Midwesterner, or uh, I'm an urbanite, or I'm a suburbanite, or I voted with this political party. We say, I belong to the right people, so I'm one of the good ones. We tend to look at who are are my people. I I belong to this, this group, this party this community, this neighborhood. So I'm one of the good ones. That's one way. And another way I think we, we boast is we say, I believe the right things. So I, I belong to the right people. Also, I believe the right things. We say, I have the right views about, about justice. I have the right views about God, about theology, about ethics, morality. And I have, because I have the right views about these things, I'm one of the good ones. I've worked it all out. I have the right beliefs. That's how I know I'm one of the good ones. A, th- a third one is I behave the right way. Sure, maybe I'm not going to say like Paul, I'm blameless, I'm perfect, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm nice to people. I'm ethical. 
that's how I know I'm one of the good ones. That I behave the right way. Again, maybe as a, a more of a religious kind of person, you might say, I, I keep all of the religious rules, I follow that, I tithe, I give, I serve, I do all these things, so I know I'm one of the good ones. Maybe if you're a more irreligious person, you say, actually, I know I'm a good one because I don't do all that stuff. But either way, you're looking to your behavior to say, I'm one of the good ones. And finally, I think we look at it and say, I've built the right life. I've built the right life. You know, I've, I went to the right school. I married this incredible person. We have these awesome kids. I've got a great job. We moved in this beautiful home. Things are just going, so I've built the right life. I'm succeeding. I take my family on great vacations. Whatever it might be, but you look and say, I've built the right life. Well, I, have, I have so much fun. I've got these great friends. So I know I'm one of the good ones because I've built the right life. Those are the kinds of things we tend to boast in. Say, I'm okay. And, and you know that you're boasting in one of those things, or you can kind of work backwards to figure out which, which of those are actually boasting in, in, kind of in two ways. One, one of the ways that you can figure out what you're boasting in is you know Something you're boasting in, you know, it's, it's, that, that's what you're boasting in when it gets attacked. So if one of these things, your, your right beliefs or belonging to the right people, if one of those things comes under attack, you can tell by your reaction if it's something you've been boasting in. Because if it's, if it's important but it's not ultimate to you, you'll, you'll be annoyed, you'll be frustrated, you might be sad, but you're not undone. You don't fall apart. But if, if you've been boasting in that thing and it comes under attack, oh, you just come unglued, you come undone. In the process of selling our house recently, there was this moment, the, kind of the, the 11th hour of the transaction when you know, something happened that, that Rachel and I felt like called our reputation into, into question. And it was just so hard for us. I mean, it's like to the point of tears where we felt like we, this can't be, we, we'll do anything to fix this. This is not right. Our reputation is being questioned in this moment. It's like, whoa. I, I didn't realize how much I boasted in my reputation, how people viewed us until I felt like it was under threat, until we were being accused of not doing something right. You know when it's under attack you found something you're boasting in. Another thing is, actually, when you feel down, when you feel sad, when you feel frustrated, what do you look to in those moments to say, I actually am okay? And that's a, a sign that points you to your boasting. If you say, well, this area of my life's going terrible, but at least I have great kids who are doing well in school. Or at least I'm getting promoted at work. Or at least that's what you're boasting in. That thing that you look to to say, even when everything else is going bad in life, at least I have this. And Paul's point is here. We all boast in something, but boasting in the wrong things will never lead to joy. And again, this is the theme of the letter. He starts off here saying, rejoice in the Lord. But he wants us to be clear, if you are rejoicing in something else, you cannot rejoice in the Lord. You cannot rejoice in Jesus if you are working and rejoicing in something else. And I think there, there are four outcomes that keep us from joy when we rejoice in the wrong things. 
And, and the first one is this, that when we rejoice in the wrong things, we're kept from joy because we become smug. And the, these, these four things I'm going to list here, they're, they're not mutually exclusive, but one of these, we become smug. You actually say, actually, I am good enough. I am enough. And what happens then is you start to become that kind of stereotypical church lady religious person. Whether you're religious or not, that's how people start to read it. You're judgmental. You kind of become arrogant. You do a lot of virtue signaling. It's not enough for you to actually believe the right things. You have to let other people know that you believe the right things with your posts and your lawn signs and your bumpers, all that. Like You have to signal to others that I'm one of the good ones. You kind of become smug. Another outcome that keeps you from joy is, is despairing. You look at this and you actually realize, I, I'm never going to be enough. If I'm transparent with you this morning, that's where I usually find myself. And kind of that despairing camp, like, I'm never going to be enough. I should look around every, I'm not as smart as those people. I'm not as good as a leader as that pastor. Our church hasn't grown as large as that one. I'm, just, I'm never going to be enough. There's a a despairing that comes, which can then easily lead to the third outcome that robs joy, which is you you end up enslaved. You can never stop trying to be enough. So maybe maybe it's your career, and so that's the thing you're looking to to boast in to say that's what makes me enough. You can never you can never stop working. You start getting up earlier, going in, getting maybe you're going into the office, or maybe you're just going to another room, whatever it is in your life right now. But you, you get up earlier work longer, stay later, don't take your vacation. Or, or maybe it's your appearance. So you just feel enslaved to that. You're always at the gym. You're always counting your calories. You're always watching what the scale says. You're, you're enslaved to always working to look and feel a certain way. Or, or again, maybe it's your kids, whatever it is, but you're enslaved to always trying to be enough. A fourth one that robs joy, though, too, is this, and that is sort of an aimlessness, that you actually don't know how, you don't know how to be enough. And, and so you kind of wander a little bit. I think especially for those who have grown up, and, and I was kind of right on the cusp of this generation, where there was really this kind of self-esteem movement, kind of the 80s, 90s on, that you can be anything, you can do anything. Just follow your passion that's what's going to make you happy. There's all this pressure. Well, what is my passion? Have I found it? Am, am I, and you keep trying a bunch of different things and you just feel, I don't know how to be good enough. Have I found it? Have I found the thing? I don't know. And again, none of these are mutually exclusive. And I feel like probably through a day, I could cycle through all, all of them, being smug, <laughs> despairing, striving, enslaved, aimless. But I wonder which one of them resonates most with you this morning of those four. The good news is, where, whichever one it's at, or maybe it's something completely different for you, you don't have to stay there. That's the, that's the good news of this letter, is that you don't have to stay there. That's what Paul is going to show us next, that there is a better joy. But if you want a lasting joy, you need a better boast. If you want a lasting joy, you need a better boast. That's what Paul shows us. It's actually what he does. He gives us a better boast in in chapter uh, 3, verses 7 through 11. And he's going to say the only boasting in Jesus will be enough. 
And that's the only thing that will, will set you free. And this is what happened to Paul. His whole life used to be defined by the characteristics that he lists, those seven or eight things that he lists there in verses four through six. His whole life has been defined by those. But then something happened. Something happened in Paul's life that allowed him to worry verses seven through 11. What was it? What happened that allowed him to write these words? And I want, before we answer that question, I just want you to hear them. So Paul goes from banking on his resume, his ethnic heritage, his personal achievement, that's everything for him, to then writing these words. And I actually have it for us in the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. I think this is so good. This is verses four through seven. He says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me, insignificant, dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. God's righteousness. So what happened in Paul's story that said all of this achievement, all of this heritage, this family identity, sometimes we miss that, but he is, in in more traditional cultures, to say my family identity is rubbish. My personal achievements, trash by comparison to knowing Jesus. What happened? What happened is that Jesus found I didn't misspeak there. When you say that Paul found Jesus, isn't that how we talk about I found Jesus? Paul found no. no. Paul didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Paul did not find Jesus. Jesus, friends, Jesus found Paul and it changed everything for him. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. It's actually Paul tells a story three different times in the book of Acts. I mean, he, he's aware of Jesus and he's trying to destroy everything. I mean, Paul not only does not, he's not looking for Jesus, he's looking to destroy everything that Jesus was about. And so you see him in, in Acts chapter 7, standing by approvingly as Stephen, one of the first followers of Jesus, is, is murdered for his faith. And then you pick up the story in Acts chapter 9 and Paul is on a rampage. He is headed to the Syrian city of Damascus to find a Jesus community there and to throw those people in prison and shut it down. And while he's on that road to Damascus, he encounters Jesus in a bright light and he falls down on the ground and he is changed. Not because he found Jesus, but because Jesus invaded and founded him and it changes everything for Paul. He starts boasting in something different. Now, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your story probably didn't look exactly like Paul's. And maybe if you're not a Christian yet, I'm I'm not going to say that your experience of being found by Jesus will look exactly like Paul's. God writes each one of our stories individually. But the outcome the outcome will be the same as Paul's. And that is that the outcome is that there will be a rejoicing, a different boast, that your boasting will change. 
No matter what it has looked like in your story for Jesus to find you, to meet you, one thing that is the same is that your boasting changes when you meet Jesus. Because when we find Jesus, everything changes. Because every other major religion in the world says essentially that to get salvation, the good life, enlightenment, whatever it is, that you look to the founder, you model your life after them, you obey their rules, the commands, you follow these habits, and then you can achieve the good life, salvation, enlightenment, rescue, whatever it is. But Christianity, friends, it is completely different. In Christianity, you don't go looking for anyone. Someone comes looking for you. And when you are found by them, everything changes. Your boasting is transformed. You don't become a Christian because you find God. You become a Christian when God finds you. Uh, You don't become a Christian by being good enough. You become a Christian by letting Jesus declare you good enough because of what he has accomplished for you. And you get access to that through faith alone in him. And when you're found, you're liberated from the smugness. You're set free from despair. You're you're uh, unchained from your enslavement. You find new direction. You're no longer aimless. But, But here's the thing. You will only boast in Jesus to the extent that you know him. And not know about him. Because Paul, Paul says here, it's boasting in, in knowing Jesus, being found in him, knowing him, that is the key. Not just knowing about him. Look, as, as, a, as a kid, I grew up in, in a good Christian family. I knew a ton about Jesus. I knew a ton about the Bible. I knew a ton about God. But it, but it wasn't until that summer in between my sophomore and junior year of high school that I feel like it came to the moment where I knew Jesus. Not just knew about him, but knew him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Maybe just in the moment of this time right here, just even asking. You just ask the Spirit, ask Jesus himself, what's the next step in me knowing you? And friends, this week my boast as we wrap up with this, has been captured by the words of the hymn, my worth is not in what I own. I just want you to hear these words. This, is, this has been my boast in Jesus this week. Listen to these words. I, I pray that they would be true of each of us. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose or pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but in the cross, I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. I will rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him and no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Father in heaven, I pray. First, I just confess that too often I do not boast like that in Jesus. And it comes out in all kinds of ugly ways of smugness or despair or enslavement or, and it just robs joy. 
So I pray that you would work afresh in each one of our lives, whether we have walked alongside of you, whether we have placed our faith in you years and years ago, or whether maybe uh, we've been away from the church for a long time and we're just coming back, or we've never put our faith in you. I just pray that today there would be a renewed life and joy and boasting in Jesus. And that we would find great joy as a result. We would just, like Paul, we would just never get over it. We would just never get over Jesus. That's in his name we pray.